From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 3rd. Yesterday, we had the opportunity to hear from the composer of the highly anticipated Lost Freedom, A Memory, a piece that will debut at the Moab Music Festival on Saturday. Now, let's hear from its narrator. I'm George Takei. I'm an actor, a writer, a an activist since, uh, well, most of my adult life. And uh, now I've been uh, narrating symphony concerts, and this is my first uh, music festival in Moab, in this glorious, majestic place with Mother Nature's sculptures looking down at us and listening. KZMU News had the opportunity to speak with Takei as he looked over Mother Nature's sculptures, also known as our local Red Rocks. Nearly 80 years ago, Takei, his siblings, and parents were just one family of many who were confined by the U.S. government during World War II. Since that dark time of Japanese-American internment, Takei has spoken out about his experience. As an actor and popular cultural figure, he continues to use as many means as possible to tell this story in the mission that it will reach as many people as possible so as to never happen again. This mission has brought him to the Moab Music Festival, where he'll perform Lost Freedom based on his personal memories and writings. Today on the news, Takei talks about his activist participation in democracy, being considered an enemy alien at five years old, as well as racism and hysteria in our modern world. I'd love to talk to you um, specifically about storytelling and narrative. Um, You know, I know you've spoken widely about your experiences um, during World War II in confinement. Um, You've done a musical, (laughs) you've done a graphic novel, um, and now you've done this collaboration. What was the creative process like between you and Mr. Bunch, and also, you know, what experiences did you feel like you wanted to emphasize for this unique piece? Well, we shouldn't talk in the past tense, because uh, I met uh, Kenji Bunch uh, in person for the first time this morning. Uh, we have been communicating via Zoom, uh, purely by technology, and uh, we've been wearing masks, so for the first time, I saw his face naked this morning. (laughs) I met the musicians for the first time today, and it turns out they're all from New York, except one from Berkeley, California, uh, where I went to school, uh, UC Berkeley. And so uh, we're all non-Newtons. Is that the word you use? Yeah. And, you know, for your narrative, you know, how did you come to write the narrative? You know, what what um, stories did you feel like drawing on? Well, I've been speaking uh, about our, the incarceration of uh, Japanese Americans uh, since uh, my early 20s. It's been my mission in life. And so I've written about it. I've uh, spoken about it all literally all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've spoken at Oxford and Cambridge in England. It seems the Brits get a kick out of the Achilles heel (laughs) of Americans. I've spoken in Japan, and at both places, they never knew such a thing happened in the United States to American citizens of Japanese ancestry. Innocent. We had nothing to do with it. And yet, 
the country was swept up by war hysteria simply because of the way we look. We look exactly like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And the masses were swept up in war hysteria. And we were subjected to the same kind of uh, attitude toward Asian Americans that we are going through now with the pandemic. We were spat on and assaulted. Uh, our homes, businesses, cars were graffitied. Uh, the government came down with a curfew. We were uh, imprisoned in our homes from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. And they froze our bank accounts. Our life savings were taken from us. And with the Attorney General making the statement, we have no reports of spying or sabotage or fifth column activities. And that is ominous because the Japanese are inscrutable, that racist stereotype. And because we can't tell what they're thinking, as a preventative, it would be prudent to lock them up before they do anything. The top attorney in the state of California was making a statement like that. The absence of evidence was the evidence. And that got all the way up to the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, signed Executive Order 9066, which ordered all Japanese Americans on the West Coast, approximately 120,000 of us, to be summarily rounded up with no charge, no trial, due process, the central pillar of our justice system, simply disappeared. I was five years old at the time. I was categorized as enemy alien, as was my four-year-old brother, as was my infant baby sister. She wasn't even a year old, and she was already an enemy alien. That's how irrational, how crazy, how totally outlandish uh, the internment was. You mentioned um, current sentiment in our world today. You know, hysteria and racism contributed to the situation directly of the internment of Japanese Americans. When you hear about current racism and hysteria and anti-Asian violence and harassment, you know, what are some tools that you think could help turn that tide? Learn the lessons of history. When uh, Donald Trump signed his first executive order, and again, in that, it's that same kind of idiocy by the top leader of our country, he signed an executive order called the Muslim Travel Ban. His rationale was all Muslims are potential terrorists, and so we need to ban them. But some people had learned the lessons from the 1940s. Sally Yates, the Deputy Attorney General, said, I will not defend this executive order. And thousands of young Americans who had learned the history rushed to their airports throughout America, many of them lawyers. They rushed to the airports to welcome Muslim people coming into this country and to welcome them and to defend them and provide them with the guidance on how to uh, navigate the uh, legalities of their coming into this country. So we're learning in slow and very small steps, but 
again at the su southern border, we have people fleeing for their lives, literally, from the violence and the outrage. Some women have seen their husbands murdered right in front of them, and they just grab their children, fleeing and seeking asylum, coming to the southern border. And that same has-been president made a sweeping statement. They're all drug dealers, rapists, and murderers. And they were stopped there. And the children torn away from them. At least in our case, we children were together with our families. But the cruelty of tearing young children away from their mothers and incarcerating them in not barbed wire uh, imprisonment, but uh, a, a chain link uh, confinement. So we never learned that lesson. And we still insist on having presidents uh, that are swept away like that. I wanted to talk to you too about, um, you know, marginalization. Often shame is kind of used as a weapon. Um, what is? Shame. Um, you know, the shame of the other, right? You have the wrong race, the wrong sexuality, the wrong gender, you know, something about you is wrong as a way to control power. Um, you know, can you talk about um, tools that you've used to move beyond the shame of, I know you've talked about your experience um, coming back to Los Angeles after confinement and how difficult it was for you and your family. Um, can you talk about the tools to combat that shame of the other? My parents, and especially my father, never lost their moral compass. They continued to raise us. My father had many, many after-dinner conversations with me, and he emphasized that our democracy is a people's democracy, and people are fallible. We have our Achilles heels. Even great men have their Achilles heels. He, he was an admirer of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He said during the Depression, he went through the Depression too, he said it was not just an economic depression. The people were spiritually depressed because of the loss of their jobs, their homes. They were living in tent cities and lining up for bowls of soup. He had to raise and galvanize these people in order to bring the economy up. And he said to them, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And he did. He got them to go. But then, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he was terrorized. That was a surprise attack. We weren't prepared. And we had a whole West Coast that was open and vulnerable to that kind of attack. And so he acted irrationally. And my father explained all this to me. He admired Franklin Delano Roosevelt, although he never wanted to uh, even meet uh, and shake hands with Mrs. Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt. We had the uh, opportunity to meet with her because we were volunteers in the Adlai Stevenson campaign headquarters. He always taught us, his children, to be actively in in involved in a, a political campaign. We were standing by, not participants in a participatory democracy. And so he's... Uh, brought me up, and I was active in student government. Mm -hmm. I, uh, 
I was elected student body president in junior high, a uh, senior board president in high school, and as I said, we were uh, volunteers in uh, many, many uh, political campaigns. I think that's what it takes. The Japanese American community prior to the war, there are exceptions to all uh, generalization, but we were not participants in American society, and certainly not the political arena. And that's why my father emphasized to his children to be participants in a participatory democracy. He believed that the ideals of American democracy were noble ideals, but it's dependent on people to make them real. Mm -hmm. And the people are fallible people. Even president is a human being with human fallibilities. And so he, he, he said, we, the diversity of America, have to be participants and guide people to the shining ideals, the noble ideals of our democracy. And uh, so I've been active not only uh, in uh, electoral politics, but also speaking out on our chapter of American history. And uh, I've spoken in schools, chambers of commerce, corporate uh, conferences, and uh, even uh, abroad, I've spoken on uh, this chapter of American history. And so I think we need to at least know that history so that those who are capable of understanding and learning the lessons of history, we are better armed to deal with the kind of uh, mindless, ignorant, illiterate uh, hysteria that uh, our democracy is subject to. And just in recent times, we saw the disaster that has been, uh, President has been. And still, his acolytes are behaving in the most irrational form. I mean, they're fighting vaccination, life or death, and they're choosing death. This is the kind of madness we have to fear in a democracy, a people's democracy, irrational, easily riled up, made hysterical human beings. One last thing that I did want to ask you is about kind of, it's related to the Dalton Wells Isolation Center that was here in Moab. And it's my understanding that about 50 men were held there um, over the period of January to April 1943. And when you read the historical documents, um, these men are described as so-called troublemakers because they dared to question what their government was doing and you know they refused to sign that confusing document that swore their allegiance to the army and to fight for the army and i am searching for a different word <laughs> to describe these these men and a different way to describe them the world, world war ii years was filled with madness on the part of the united states government and the relentless assault on our dignity we were forced to sleep in horse stalls right after the signing of the executive order. And this constant uh, assault on our individuality and our manhood, mm -hmm. and many of them turned radicalized at the Tule Lake camp. Uh, and my parents answered the loyalty questionnaire mm -hmm. truthfully. It was so uh, put together with such sloppiness, such crudeness, 
Uh, for example, let me give you the two most controversial questions. It's clear on its surface. Question 27 asked, will you join with the armed forces of the United States in combat duty wherever ordered? Japanese Americans, right after the, the war began, like rushed to their recruitment centers to volunteer to serve, like any young American of that period. This was an act of patriotism, which was answered with a slap on the face. They were denied military service and categorized as enemy alien and imprisoned. These people were outraged, and there was a series of that. Well, the second question, question 28, was one sentence with two conflicting ideas. It asked, will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? The Emperor of Japan? That was outrageous. The government assumed, just because of our faces, that we had a pre-existing, inborn racial loyalty to the emperor. So if he answered no, meaning I have no loyalty to the emperor to forswear, that no carried over to the first part of the very same sentence. Will you swear your loyalty to the United States? If he answered yes, meaning I do swear my loyalty to the United States, that applied to the second part, meant that you were confessing that you had a non-existent loyalty to the emperor that you were forswearing. It was outrageous, a series of abuses. And so they and my parents, uh, and they answered truthfully no to those two irrational uh, questions. And for that, they were categorized as disloyal and sent to the segregation camp for disloyals. And that camp at Tule Lake was bristly with military armament. It had three layers of barbed wire fence. The 10 normal confinement camps had one layer of barbed wire fence. The tall sentry towers were now equipped with machine guns aimed at us. The perimeter was patrolled by armed jeeps and a half a dozen tanks which belonged on a battlefield, not there to intimidate and goad people that were already goaded enough. And many young men, some of whom had initially volunteered to serve as a patriot, were so angry that they became radicalized. Their radicalism was created by the stupidity of the government. They called themselves, uh, in Tule Lake they were called Hoshidang, or the Japanese word uh, translated, it means the volunteer crew. Mm. They became pro-Japanese advocates. They were the ones who initially volunteered. Mm. The United States government made them pro-Japanese advocates. Mm. And they would uh, jog around the block to be fit enough to rise up when Japan lands mm. on mainland U.S. and join them. And they uh, jogged to the uh, Japanese cadence of washoi, washoi. And that's what I woke up to in the mornings mm -hmm. there at Tuli Lake. And they were in their uh, jogs with banzai, banzai, banzai. They did all these things to, to egg on and, 
irritate the uh, camp command. And there was such uh, irritants that they forced uh, the internees who had uh, construction experience and they, they were forced to build a concrete jail building with iron bars to define the jail cells. We call that the stockade. And they were dragged out in the middle of that. They didn't arrest them in the daytime because it would have caused the riot. So they came in the dark of the night and dragged these suspects. They, they, they usually got them wrong. These suspects and their wives or mothers or sisters would be crying out, he's, he's innocent, he's, he's a good boy, please don't. And they would be sobbing and yelling and they would be taken to the stockade. And on one uh, pilgrimage, we uh, toured the stockade. There were graffitis on the wall, but what I noticed most were the brown splotches on the concrete walls. They were tortured and their heads were smashed against them. And th those are the ones, the yeah. troublemakers so-called, but they were, they were initially uh, good people. They were taken briefly uh, to places like Dalton Wells, and that was called a Justice Department Detention Center. Can you imagine that word justice happening to identify these horror places? Justice Department Detention Centers. But this was a temporary one. As you said, they were there at most a few months, usually a few weeks. And uh, the main Justice Department detention camp was in Texas at, at a place called Crystal City. And the outrage there was the United States had an alliance agreement with Peru. Peru had many Japanese diaspora immigrants. They arranged with the Peruvian government to round up their Japanese Peruvians and the United States government went and brought them over to the Crystal City Justice Department Detention Center. Can you imagine how outrageous that was? Their intention was to use these uh, Japanese Peruvians as uh, trade exchange for Americans who happened to be in Japan and were uh, captives of the Japanese government. And we didn't have too many Japanese Americans for that purpose. And so they borrowed <laughs> Japanese Peruvians for such purpose. And one of my uh, in-laws' husband was a Japanese Peruvian. When the war ended, these Japanese Peruvians in the uh, Justice Department Detention Center were declared illegal immigrants. Outrageous! The United States government brought foreigners of Japanese ancestry to this country and then they called them illegal immigrants, and they had to fight to stay here. And my sister-in-law's sister married one of them, and he became Americanized. And uh, so we have uh, a few members of the Japanese-American community who are of Peruvian origin. There is a complex and unbelievably cruel history uh, in this chapter of uh, American history. Internationally. Thank you so much for sharing these stories. I think it's so it's so interesting to have them. Um, you know, your piece "Lost Lost Freedom." Um, stories and music are the things that connect us throughout the generations. And 
tell us what not to do moving ahead. Well, I, it's my mission. I'm an actor and an artist, and it's my art that I use. We developed a Broadway musical called Allegiance. Uh, I go on speaking engagements. I've written uh, op-ed pieces for uh, both uh, the New York Times and the Washington Press. And now we're working on getting, they called us enemy, made into a television series. I'm using all the tools I have as an artist to educate Americans today as few Americans can, to tell that very personal story and share it so that we can have a more educated, uh, better Americans in the future. I did it as a graphic memoir. I wrote my autobiography, which was published in 1994, mm -hmm. but I did this uh, graphic memoir to reach a young readership, teenagers and preteens, mm -hmm. because at that age, you're ab absorbing in information through your pores, mm -hmm. and they're gonna become the voters of the future, and hopefully the movers and shakers of the future, and they'll be like uh, Sally Yates, who will say, I will not defend this executive order. Anything else that you feel worth mentioning? A lot more. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I, you can tell I'm a garrulous guy. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> Actor and activist George Takei. He was one of the 120,000 Japanese Americans interned during World War II. His mission is to tell his personal story in as many places as possible, so this dark period of American democracy will never happen again. Takei will perform Lost Freedom based on his personal memories tomorrow night at the MOA Music Festival. On-air listeners can find the full interview with Takei on our website and podcast. And now let's go to the weekly newsreel where we speak with reporters about their latest stories of the Moab area. According to the Greene County Sheriff's Office, there are now two rewards that have been posted for any information that could lead to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for the murder of Kylan Schulte and Crystal Turner. The couple was found dead in the LaSalle Mountains on August 18th. The rewards total $20,000. Here's Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent. Yes, um, according to the Grand County Sheriff, uh, which continues to investigate this, uh, this incident along with the FBI and the Utah Bureau of Investigation, a uh, private business person, a, a contractor, I believe, but I have no idea, and I'm making no effort to identify the person. Mm -hmm. They want to be anonymous, but they've put up a reward for good information that leads to... Uh, the apprehension and the uh, ultimate conviction of whoever's responsible. Okay, so a reward for any information. According to law enforcement, the couple left the Moab area from Woody's Tavern on August 13th. Yep. And then they were found dead in the LaSalle Mountains on August 18th. So that's a crucial time period. Right. And um, if people want more details, they are in the Times Independent. And next, um, what do you know about flooding? Well, we have it when it rains, and um, <laughs> there's all kinds of problems. I mean, we're in a, a lot of flood zones anyway, and what's happening is the, the county has like uh, close to $40 million, and probably considerably more than that because this is an old estimate, and um, improvements that are needed with flooding. Um, and along Pack Creek, it's getting worse because homeowners uh, who flood out 
they take steps to protect their property, mm-hmm. and in doing so, they create a problem for their their downgrade neighbors. All of a sudden, they're getting flooded. Yeah. So uh, there's there's a reason why uh, cities and counties hire civil engineers uh, to work in their planning departments mm-hmm. and who, who can read these things and uh, uh, why a civil engineer is required on any major construction project so mm-hmm. uh, water goes somewhere um, without, right. without harming someone. Uh, down down river, if you will. Right. So um, it can truly become a river. Yeah, and I think it's uh, one of those deals where how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. So it's whether they'll ever address all of the flooding issues. Uh, if they do, they might be the first community in America to do so. So okay, so there's a long article in the TI about uh, the flooding issue and on uh, the backlog of improvements. And, you know, some ideas of which ones to tackle first. Yeah. And it's one of those deals where people are being asked not to do anything uh, to their homes. I I think if I'm a homeowner, I want some assurance that the county will do something if I can't. And I don't know if they are in a position to do that. I I suppose you can say caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. But Mm. um, if I've lived somewhere for 20 years and I've (laughs) never had a flooding problem, but my neighbor upstream right has done something to give me a flooding problem i, I need some kind of recourse so sure. you know or else you're just going to have a whole bunch of neighbors suing right. each other and um the times independent has continued it's um is continuing its election coverage in this latest edition what can uh, readers and listeners find there okay um first of all i i want you to know that if if you're really super interested in the city council and mayoral race um, you need to you need to get a subscription to our paywall because we just don't have the real estate to to deal with 14 candidates or 13 candidates. We just don't. So we have one question is answered by all the candidates uh, in today's edition, and the second question is answered online. Um, and it's it's worth the five bucks a month that you would pay for this subscription to get this information. Uh, we asked the mayor's uh, questions, um, how much time w- would they have during their day? In other words, how much mm-hmm. commitment can they give uh, the city? In other words, to meet with constituents, mm-hmm. staff, right. all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was their question because mayors have a completely different role, the actual council. They don't vote. They can influence, but they don't vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, our question to the city council was how they would overcome neighborhood nimbyism that plagues efforts to reform the city's zoning. And this is on the, the, to give you context for why this question is. Housing policy experts say that the greatest opportunity uh, Moab has to decrease the cost of housing is zoning reform. Right. And um, saying that and doing that are really two different things because mm-hmm. there's so much... Uh, the city council uh, is divided over how to do that. And clearly the council or the, the community itself is divided. Everybody wants affordable housing, just not in their neighborhood. We saw that with the PAD, the P- Planned Affordable Development Ordinance, several years ago. Um, a lot of community members loudly spoke up against it. And you could say that's NIMBYism, or you could say they were pointing out deficiencies in the PAD. You know, maybe it was about ordinance. Um, whatever it was, uh, the city wasn't able to create an ordinance that actually works. Right. I, 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 th- I think it's fair to say that um, if you don't want to say that the pad is a failure, 
you cannot say it's a success. Right. So whatever you want to call it, you cannot mm -hmm. call it a success. Right. The city is using the pad, which gives you um, higher densities for their own project, um, which is temp on pause, as far as we know, with Walnut Lane Apartments. Right. Um, but no other developer has taken advantage of that ordinance. And I think it got hamstrung uh, based on an inability to come to a good compromise with community members. Right. And then finally, Doug, you would love to end this on a good note. We have a big picture of the very first dance in the history of Margaret L. Hopkin Middle School. I thought that deserves the front page because it's historic. They look happy to be attending uh, their first, or as the Times Independent put it, their last first dance. When I dust off my old uh, brain and think back when I was in <laughs> junior high, I was always smiling when I was doing anything outside of the classroom too, so. <laughs> right. Doug McMurdo, editor of the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Annie McVeigh is Moab City's new Parks, Recreation, and Trails director. Moab Sun News reporter Allie Hartford did a Q&A with McVeigh for their latest edition. So her role oversees the management and development of all city parks, um, and she also supervises the recreation department. So that's everything from, like, the Aquatic Center to mm -hmm. the Film Commission. Okay. Um, and she works a lot with, like, the school programs mm -hmm. that they do. Um, and basically, her role is tying all of these things together and mm -hmm. making sure that across the board, um, all of these departments start working together. Okay. So we haven't had a person in her position for some time. Is that right? Yeah. She told me it's been at least five years. That we've been absent a director. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So this is why she's focusing on organizing. Yeah. So basically we talked about if there are any projects coming up and mm -hmm. kind of what she's looking forward to. And she told me that they're just going to spend about a year, like organizing all of the departments and kind of figuring out somewhat of like a master plan mm -hmm. to figure out how the city can move forward with new projects. Okay. Anything interesting to say about those new projects or is it really just in preliminary stages? Yeah. I mean, most of it is in preliminary stages, but Annie told me that she's focusing a lot on like updating our infrastructure. Mm -hmm. She also wants to create a water management plan. Um, and because a lot of people are wondering about like how the city can demonstrate like responsible water practices, especially right. being in a drought and being in a desert, mm -hmm. um, like how can we responsibly have these, you know, green and grassy parks. Right. And she said that the, um, park staff is actually going to partner with, um, USU mm -hmm. to come up with better water management plans and just like different strategies and kind of like different types of grasses that they can use in desert parks. You also wrote about some upcoming events. Yes. In the Moab <laughs> Sun News. Let's start off with the Moab Monster Mash. I didn't know that this was associated with the Film Commission. To me, it sounds like a Halloween party. Yes, it's <laughs> Somewhat of a Halloween party. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so as a lot of people in Moab will know, um, the Moab to Monument Valley Film Commission had a really popular film challenge, mm -hmm. um, I think in 2019, mm -hmm. like the 49-hour showdown. Mm -hmm. um, and it was super popular, and a lot of people turned out. And so this year, the city decided to do another filmmaking challenge called the Moab Monster Mash. Okay, um, and so registration opens on September 6th. 
and then filmmakers will have until October 18th to create their film Mm. and um, they have to make it within five genres which are Cursed Treasure in Them Hills, Ghosts of the West, The Devil Went Down to Moab, The Beast from the Red Rocks, and The Dark Desert. Oh, so cool. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, and the thing about horror is that it doesn't have to be strictly, like, scary. Mm -hmm. Um, So these don't have to be, you know, horrifying, like, scary films. They can be, like, fun or Mm -hmm. just anything that will stick to those main themes. Right. Um, And then once filmmakers register, they'll get their enigma which is like the individual element challenge, which is usually like a prop or a line of dialogue. And films have to be under 10 minutes. But those are kind of like the only rules. Like you said, it's been since 2019, since Mm -hmm. the film commission has had this, you know, sort of film challenge. It sounds like filmmakers have longer this time Mm -hmm. to create their, their film. Who can register? Yeah, so anyone can register. Um, the registration fee is $50, but it will be waived for any Grand County students cool. um, if students want to join. The director of the Film Commission um, mentioned that it's not only locals who can register. Like, anyone mm-hmm. who wants to make a film at all, even if it's just on their iPhone, can mm-hmm. Um, do so. And will there be a showing at the end? Yes, there will be a showing on October 30th um, at Star Hall. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Okay, but there's more events to talk about. Yes. (laughs) There's more things coming up. Okay, so that is in October. What's happening a little bit closer to to now? Yeah, so on September 6th, um, there's the Rocky Mountain Power Community Concert, which is through the Moab Music Festival. The Moab Music Festival um, prioritizes, like, community engagement. And so this free concert is one of the ways that they really like to Mm -hmm. do so. And um, the lineup is basically just a bunch of highlights from the festival. Mm -hmm. There are going to be 13 musicians who will perform a variety of instruments and Mm -hmm. kind of genres. Um, There's going to be, like, a soprano singer and someone on percussion, piano player Mm -hmm. and a violin player. And they'll all just perform at this free concert, which is really nice because the least expensive ticket at the festival this year is $40. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is a way for people to access, like, the best of what the festival is offering. Totally. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I think I know that the festival tries to keep those bigger concerts, like, at Red Rocks or at Sorrel, less expensive than, like, their Grotto concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, like, one of their offerings that is totally free that um if yeah finances are the barrier then anyone can can join and enjoy a Mm. great show and there's another event yes so another event is the red sand powwow which will happen on september 11th um and september 12th which is like that weekend I talked to Jacob Crane, who's the executive director for the Salt Lake City Air Protectors. The SLC Air Protectors is this nonprofit organization that's Native American-led that was formed kind of broadly to protect the environment and more specifically to bring light to the lack of clean air in Salt Lake City. Mm. Um, But they have partnered with the local Full Circle Intertribal Center to put on this powwow. So a powwow is a Native American cultural heritage celebration and ceremonial gathering. And the reason that they wanted to do it in Moab is simply because there hasn't been a powwow in Moab for a really long time. And also because Moab sees a ton of different people who come through here. Um, And so it was kind of both to bring this 
cultural heritage celebration to Moab and also to get exposure. Um, Which is really cool because I personally didn't know anything about powwows before Mm -hmm. I did this story. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, I think speaking with people at the Full Circle Intertribal Center, you know, Native American visibility is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, it is um, really notable that um, so many of us um, growing up who are non-Indigenous don't get to learn about these cultural traditions Mm -hmm. or our modern Native American communities and is part of the reason why they're hosting this this powwow here in Moab um, and they're inviting the non-Indigenous community for community healing. Yeah, so the theme of this year's powwow is healing and unity through dance, music, and celebration. Um, and Jacob Crane mentioned that he just believes that that's what the world needs right now, yeah. especially due to the fact that we are still living in this really devastating pandemic that's Mm -hmm. been especially devastating for native communities so he said that they wanted to give everyone a chance to heal through like song and dance ali hartford reporter at the moab sun news subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com that does it for the weekly newsreel where we highlight some of the latest coverage from our media partners Find the stories mentioned today in the show notes of the news at kzmu.org and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.